I'm Peter Medic, and you're listening to Episode 16 of Return of the Birds, the serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin by John Burroughs. If this is the first time you've dropped into the story, you might want to listen to the previous episodes, but you're welcome to stick around. I want to give a special thank you to the thousands of women and men in the field who recorded and cataloged the bird calls and songs I used over the course of this audiobook. You are doing selfless and important work, and it's appreciated. And I have a favor to ask. If you know someone or meet someone who likes being outdoors, being outside, being in nature, please tell them about Return of the Birds. It would really help our show take flight. Thank you. Chapter 8 The Invitation Years ago, when quite a youth, I was rambling in the woods one Sunday with my brothers, gathering black birch, wintergreens, etc., when, as we reclined upon the ground, gazing vaguely up into the trees, I caught sight of a bird that paused a moment on a branch above me, the like of which I had never before seen or heard of. It was probably the blue-yellow-backed warbler, as I have since found this to be a common bird in those woods but to my young fancy it seemed like some fairy bird, so curiously marked was it, and so new and unexpected. I saw it a moment as the flickering leaves parted, noted the white spot on its wing, and it was gone. How the thought of it clung to me afterward. It was a revelation. It was the first imitation I had had, that the woods we knew so well held birds that we knew not at all. Were our eyes and ears so dull then? There was the robin, the blue jay, the bluebird, the yellow bird, the cherry bird, the cat bird, the chipping bird, the woodpecker, the high hole, an occasional red bird, and a few others in the woods or along their borders. But whoever dreamed that there were still others that not even the hunters saw, and whose names no one had ever heard. When, one summer day, later in life, I took my gun and went to the woods again, in a different, though perhaps less simple spirit, I found my youthful vision more than realized. There were indeed other birds, plenty of them, singing, nesting, breeding among the familiar trees, which I had before passed by unheard and unseen. It is a surprise that awaits every student of ornithology, and the thrill of delight that accompanies it, and the feeling of fresh, eager inquiry that follows, can hardly be awakened by any other pursuit. Take the first step in ornithology, procure one new specimen, and you are ticketed for the whole voyage. There is a fascination about it quite overpowering. It fits so well with other things, with fishing, hunting, farming, walking, camping out, with all that takes one to the fields and woods. One may go a blackberrying and make some rare discovery, or, while driving his cow to pasture, hear a new song or make a new observation. Secrets lurk on all sides. There is news in every bush. Expectation is ever on tiptoe. What no man ever saw before may be the next moment to be revealed to you. What a new interest the woods have. How you long to explore every nook and corner of them. You would even find consolation in being lost in them. 
you could then hear the night birds and the owls and, in your wanderings, might stumble upon some unknown specimen. In all excursions to the woods or to the shore, the students of ornithology has an advantage over his companions. He has one more resource, one more avenue of delight. He, indeed, kills two birds with one stone, and sometimes three. If others wander, he can never go out of his way. His game is everywhere. The cawing of a crow makes him feel at home, while a new note or a new song drowns. Audubon, on the desolate coasts of Labrador, is happier than any king ever was, and on shipboard is nearly cured of his seasickness when a new gull appears in sight. One must taste it to understand or appreciate its fascination. The looker-on sees nothing to inspire such enthusiasm. Only a little feathers and a half-musical note or two. Why all this ado? Quote, Who would give a hundred and twenty dollars to know about the birds? End quote, said an eastern governor, half contemptuously to Wilson, as the latter solicited a subscription to his great work. Sure enough, bought knowledge is dear at any price. The most precious things have no commercial value. It is not, Your Excellency, mere technical knowledge of the birds that you are asked to purchase, but a new interest in the fields and woods, and a new moral and intellectual tonic, a new key to the treasure house of nature. Think of the many other things Your Excellency would get, the air, the sunshine, the healing fragrance and coolness, and the many respites from the knavery and turmoil of political life. Yesterday was an October day of rare brightness and warmth. I spent the most of it in a wild wooded gorge of Rock Creek. A persimmon tree, which stood upon the bank, had dropped some of its fruit in the water. As I stood there, half-leg deep picking them up, a wood duck came flying down the creek and passed over my head. Presently it returned flying up, and then it came back again, and sweeping low around a bend, prepared to alight in a still dark reach in the creek, which was hidden from my view. As I passed that way about a half hour afterward, the duck started it up, uttering its wild alarm note. In the stillness, I could hear the whistle of its wings and the splash of the water when it took flight. Nearby, I saw where the raccoon had come down to the water for fresh clams, leaving his long, sharp track in the mud and sand. Before I had passed this hidden stretch of water, a pair of those mysterious thrushes, the gray-cheeked, flew up from the ground and perched on a low branch. Who can tell how much this duck, this footprint in the sand, and these strange thrushes from the far north enhanced the interest and charm of the autumn woods? Ornithology cannot be satisfactorily learned from the books. The satisfaction is in learning it from nature. One must have an original experience with the birds. The books are only the guide, the invitation. Though there remain not another new species to describe, any young person with health and enthusiasm has opened to him or her the whole field anew and is eligible to experience all the thrill and delight of the original discoverers. But let me say, in the same breath, that the books can by no manner of means be dispensed with. A copy of Wilson or Audubon, for reference and to compare notes with, is invaluable. In lieu of these, access to some large museum or collection would be a great help. In the beginning, one finds it very difficult to identify a bird from any verbal description. 
reference to a colored plate or a stuffed specimen at once settles the matter. This is the chief value of the books. They are charts to sail by, the route is mapped out, and much time and labor thereby saved. First, find your bird, observe its ways, its song, its calls, its flight, its haunts. Then shoot it, not ogle it with a glass, and compare with Audubon. In this way, the feathered kingdom may soon be conquered. The ornithologists divide and subdivide the birds into a great many orders, families, genera, species, etc., which at first sight are apt to confuse and discourage the reader. But any interested person can acquaint himself with most our songbirds by keeping in mind a few general divisions and by observing the characteristics of each. By far the greater number of our landbirds are either warblers, vireos, flycatchers, thrushes, or finches. The warblers are perhaps the most puzzling. These are the true sylvia, the real woodbirds. They are small, very active, but feeble songsters, and, to be seen, must be sought for. In passing through the woods, most persons have a vague consciousness of slight chirping, semi-musical sounds in the trees overhead. In most cases, these sounds proceed from the warblers. Throughout the Middle and Eastern states, half a dozen species or so may be found in almost every locality, as the redstart, the Maryland yellowthroat, the yellow warbler, not the common goldfinch with the black cap and the black wings and tail, the hooded warbler, the black and white creeping warbler, or others according to the locality and the character of the woods. In pine or hemlock woods, one species may predominate, in maple or oak woods, or in mountainous districts, another. The subdivision of ground warblers, the most common members of which are the Maryland yellowthroat, the Kentucky warbler, and the morning ground warbler, are usually found in low, wet, bushy, or half-open woods, often on and always near the ground. The summer yellowbird, or yellow warbler, is not now a wood bird at all, being found in orchards and parks, and along streams and in the trees of villages and cities. As we go north, the number of warblers increases, till, in the northern part of New England, and in the Canadas, as many as ten or twelve varieties may be found breeding in June. Audubon found the blackpole warbler breeding in Labrador, and congratulates himself on being the first white man who'd ever seen its nest. When these warblers pass north in May, they seem to go singly or in pairs, and their black caps and striped coats show conspicuously. When they return in September, they're in troops or loose flocks, are of a uniform dull drab or brinish color, and are very fat. They scour the treetops for a few days, almost eluding the eye by their quick movements, and are gone. According to my own observation, the number of species of warblers which one living in the middle district sees on the return in the fall is very small compared with the number he may observe migrating north in the spring. The yellow-rumped warblers are the most noticeable of all in the autumn. They come about the streets in the garden and seem especially drawn to dry, leafless trees. They dart spitefully about, uttering a sharp chirp. In Washington, I have seen them in the outskirts all winter. Audubon figures and describes over 40 different warblers. More recent writers have divided and subdivided the group very much, giving new names to new classifications. But this part is of interest and value only to the professional ornithologist. The finest songster among the sylvia, according to my notions, is the black-throated greenback. 
Its song is sweet and clear, but brief. The rarest of the species are Swainson's warbler, said to be disappearing, the cerulean warbler, said to be abundant about Niagara, and the morning ground warbler, which I have found breeding about the headwaters of the Delaware in New York. The vireos, or greenlets, are a sort of connecting link between warblers and the true flycatchers, and partake of the characteristics of both. The red-eyed vireo, whose sweet soliloquy is one of the most constant and cheerful sounds in our woods and groves, is perhaps the most noticeable and abundant species. The vireos are a little larger than the warblers, and are far less brilliant and variegated in color. There are five species found in most of our woods, namely the red-eyed vireo, the white-eyed vireo, the warbling vireo, the yellow-throated vireo, and the solitary vireo the red-eyed and the warbling being most abundant, and the white-eyed being the most lively and animated songster. I meet the latter bird only in the thick, bushy growths of low, swampy localities, where, eluding the observer, it pours forth its song with a sharpness and rapidity of articulation that are truly astonishing. This strain is very marked, and though inlaid with the notes of several other birds, is entirely unique. The iris of this bird is white, as that of the red eyes is red though in neither case can this mark be distinguished at more than two or three yards. In most cases, the iris of the birds is a dark hazel, which passes for black. The basket-like nest, pendant to the low branches in the woods, which the falling leaves of autumn reveal to all passers, is, in most cases, the nest of the red-eyed, though the solitary constructs a similar tenement, but in much more remote and secluded localities. Most birds exhibit great alarm and distress, usually with a strong dash of anger when you approach their nests. But the demeanor of the red-eyed on such occasion is an exception to this rule. The parent birds move about softly amid the branches above, eyeing the intruder with a curious, innocent look, uttering now and then a subdued note or plaint, solicitous and watchful, but making no demonstration of anger or distress. The birds, no more than the animals, like to be caught napping. But I remember one autumn day of coming upon a red-eyed vireo that was clearly oblivious to all that was passing around it. It was a young bird, though full-grown, and it was taking its siesta on a low branch in a remote heathery field. Its head was snugly stowed away under its wing, and it would have fallen an easy prey to the first hawk that came along as I approached noiselessly and when within a few feet of it, paused to note its breathings, so much more rapid and full than our own. A bird has greater lung capacity than any other living thing, hence more animal heat and life at a higher pressure. When I reached out my hand and carefully closed it around the winged sleeper, 
Its sudden terror and consternation almost paralyzed it. When it struggled and cried piteously, and when released, hastened and hid itself in some near bushes. I never expected to surprise it thus a second time. The flycatchers are a larger group than the vireos, with stronger marked characteristics. They are not properly songsters, but are classed by some writers as screechers. Their pugnacious dispositions are well known, and they not only fight among themselves, but are incessantly quarreling with their neighbors. The kingbird, or tyrant flycatcher, might serve as the type of the order. The common, or wood peewee, excites the most pleasant emotions, both on account of its plaintive note and its exquisite mossy nest. The Phoebe bird is the pioneer of the flycatchers and comes in April, sometimes in March. It comes familiarly about the house and outbuildings and usually builds beneath hay sheds or under bridges. The flycatchers always take their insect prey on the wing by a sudden darting or swooping movement. Often a very audible snap of the beak may be heard. These birds are the least elegant, both in form and color, of any of our feathered neighbors. They have short legs, a short neck, large heads, and broad, flat beaks with brussels at the base. They often fly with a peculiar quivering movement of the wings, and when at rest, some of the species oscillate their tails at short intervals. There are found in the United States 19 species. In the middle and eastern districts, one may observe in summer, without any special search, about five of them, namely the kingbird, the phoebe bird, the wood peewee, the great crested flycatcher, distinguished from all others by the bright ferruginous color of its tail, and the small green crested flycatcher. The thrushes are birds of real melody, and will afford one more delight perhaps than any other class. The robin is the most familiar example. Their manners, flight, and form are the same in each species. See the robin hop along upon the ground, strike an attitude, scratch for a worm, fix his eye upon something before him or upon the beholder flip his wings suspiciously, fly straight to his perch, or sit at sundown on some high branch caroling his sweet and honest strain. And you have seen what is characteristic of all the thrushes. Their carriage is preeminently marked by grace, and their songs by melody. Beside the robin, which is in no sense a wood bird, we have in New York the wood thrush, the hermit thrush, the veery or Wilson's thrush, the olive-backed thrush, and transiently one or two other species not so clearly defined. The wood thrush and the hermit stand at the head as songsters. No two persons perhaps agreeing as to which is the superior. Under the general head of finches, Audubon describes over 60 different birds, ranging from the sparrows to the grosbeaks, and including the buntings, the linnets, the snowbirds, the crossbills, and the redbirds. 
We have nearly or quite a dozen varieties of the sparrow in the Atlantic states, but perhaps no more than half that number would be discriminated by the unprofessional observer. The song sparrow, which every child knows, comes first, at least his voice is first heard. And can there be anything more fresh and pleasing than this first simple strain heard from the garden fence or a near hedge on some bright, still March morning? The fielder vesper sparrow, called also grass finch and bay-winged sparrow, a bird slightly larger than the song sparrow and of a lighter gray color. is abundant in all our upland fields and pastures, and is a very sweet songster. It builds upon the ground, without the slightest cover or protection, and also roots there. Walking through the fields at dusk, I frequently start them up, almost beneath my feet. When disturbed by day, they fly with a quick, sharp movement, showing two white quills in the tail. The traveler along the country roads disturbs them, earthing their wings in the soft, dry earth, or sees them skulking and flitting along the fences in front of them. They run in the furrow in advance of the team, or perch upon the stones a few rods off. They sing much after sundown, hence the aptness of the name Vesper Sparrow, which a recent writer, Wilson Flagg, has bestowed upon them. In the meadows and low wetlands, the savannah sparrow is met with, and may be known by its fine insect-like song. The fox sparrow, the largest and handsomest species of this family, comes to us in the fall, from the north where it breeds. Likewise, the tree or Canada sparrow and the white-crowned and white-throated sparrows. The social sparrow, alias hairbird, alias red-headed chipping bird, is the smallest of the sparrows and, I believe, the only one that builds in trees. The finches, as a class, all have short conical bills with tails more or less forked. The purple finch heads the list in varied musical ability. Beside the groups of our more familiar birds, which I have thus hastily outlined, there are numerous other groups, more limited in species, but compromising some of our best-known songsters. The bobolink, for instance, has properly no congener. The famous mockingbird of the southern states belongs to a genus which has but two other representatives in the Atlantic states, namely the catbird and the long-tailed or ferruginous thrush. The wrens are a large and interesting family, and as songsters, are noted for vivacity and volubility. The more common species are the house wren, the marsh wren, the great Carolina wren, and the winter wren, the latter perhaps deriving its name from the fact that it breeds in the north. It is an exquisite songster, 
and pours forth its notes so rapidly and with such sylvian sweetness and cadence that it seems to go off like a musical alarm. Wilson called the kinglets wrens, but they have little to justify the name, except that the Ruby Crown's song is of the same gushing lyrical character as that referred to above. Dr. Brewer was entranced with the song of one of these tiny minstrels in the woods of New Brunswick, and thought he had found the author of the strain in the Blackpole Warbler. He seems loath to believe that a bird so small as either of the kinglets could possess such vocal powers. It may indeed have been the winter wren. But from my own observation, I believe the ruby-crowned kinglet quite capable of such a performance. But I must leave this part of the subject and hasten on. You listen to Return of the Birds, a serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin, written by John Burroughs and read by Peter Medic, with bird vocalizations courtesy of the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Recording, editing, and post-production by 44 from 26 in Bellingham, Washington. Post-production and mastering by Counterweight Creative, recorded at One Fine Studio in Bellingham, Washington. Engineered, produced, and directed by Peter Medic. This has been a presentation of 44 from 26, a family-owned and operated media experiment. For more updates, we invite you to join the growing 44 from 26 community at 44from26.com or visit returnofthebirds.com. Wake Robin is available for digital download in e-reader format at archive.org. This is 44 from 26. Thank you for listening to this episode of Return of the Birds. Please visit returnofthebirds.com to find show notes for each episode. The show notes include links back to the Macaulay Library bird vocalizations we used in this episode, images of the birds mentioned in this episode, and more. And one last note, any flubs, goofs, and mispronunciations or errors are mine. If you want to tell me about them, stop by 44from26.com forward slash contact and click the button to leave a voicemail or send me an email. Till next time, chirp away.